Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, why is BC in the midst of a teaching shortage as hundreds of ships go unfilled? Plus, Keith Baldry joins us for the week that was in politics as we look at the free enterprise implosion and the potential for an NDP supermajority after this fall's provincial election. And Little Airport, no more. Abbotsford Airport sets a new passenger volume record as the region's second airport continues to grow. That's all next on the Jazz Hall Show podcast. Uh, the U.S. has launched a devastating wave of airstrikes on Iran's Revolutionary Guard uh, in Iraq and Syria in retaliation for the drone strike that killed three U.S. troops. Multiple long-range bombers and drones hit 85 targets with 125 bombs in the widespread military op- operation tonight in the Middle East. Two um, B-1 bombers flew from the uh, U.S. for the mission, hitting multiple targets linked to the uh, IRGC and Iran-backed militias, including command and intelligence centers and areas where Rockets, missiles, and drones uh, were stored. The huge operation is the first from the U.S. striking back after Iran-backed militias' a deadly strike on Tower 22 base near Jordan's border with Syria and Iraq last Sunday. The assault uh, came just hours after Mr. Biden, Prime President Biden, and top defense leader, uh, leaders joined grieving families to watch as the remains of the three Army Reserve soldiers were returned uh, to the U.S. at uh, Dover, Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. Let's go and get the latest. So joining me now is Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Chikini. Reggie, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now, many people were expecting uh, the U.S. to respond, but was it still a surprise uh, for this response to be so quick? Uh, no, and in fact, uh, President Biden just had been facing criticism uh, for the delay. Uh, in his response with some Republicans arguing that this was giving time uh, for militants in the region uh, to be able to regroup or to be able to reorganize themselves and potentially carry out another attack. And look, it's been days since we heard President Biden say that he had made a decision in order to move forward. We didn't know when. We didn't know what it was going to be. Um, So the decision for it to be on a Friday night, you know, it may be surprising to some. The White House says that they knew this was the time they were going to carry this out. And now that we have details of it, um, you know, you can see that there was some planning that needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I was mentioning, of course, that the airstrikes are on uh, Iran's Revolutionary Guard uh, in Iraq and Syria, potentially 85 targets. Do we know how long uh, this response will be? Is it the one time, one evening, or is this going to continue for days? No, this is going to continue. Uh, We've heard from the White House. uh, We heard from uh, the Secretary of Defense this week. We heard from the State Department uh, that this was not going to be a one-off event and it was going to be something that was carried out when the United States felt the need to carry it out. And the White House put out a statement um, just about half an hour after the news uh, was released that these strikes were, were being conducted, saying that while the U.S. doesn't seek conflict in the Middle East, Um, that these strikes will continue, quote, at times and places of our choosing. And I think that those are interesting words here to to kind of read between the lines in that this is not going to be a repetitive day attack. It may be something where there is time in between. 
we're also still waiting to find out if this is solely going to be um, a military response or if they will you know, employ other kinds of, of defense assets, uh, including things like cyber warfare. This is going to be a response that takes time. We've heard that, and we're now seeing it carried out. Uh, this is all focused in and around, around Iran-backed militias. Uh, is there worry that this may lead to a, a broadening and widening of uh, the war. Uh, at this point, it is Israel uh, and Hamas, but with what is happening now with the United States, is there worry that the, this may actually broaden the war? Sure. I, I mean, look, that's a real possibility here, and the United States has been the one arguing uh, that this is Iran's doing, that this is if, if this war is broadening, uh, that this is because Iran, because not just this one attack in uh, in, in Jordan, uh, but there have been 160 attacks on U.S. military infrastructure throughout the region um, you know, since October the 7th, and then what's going on in, in between Israel and Hamas is partly backed by uh, Iran. So the U.S. is saying, look, Iran, you're the ones who are, are, are resulting in, in where we are right now. But at the same time, the U.S. does not want this to expand any further. Iran has come out to say that they do not want this to expand. And if strikes happen in their territory, that would be a red line for them to cross. But it's worth remembering, Jazz, we're in an election year. So, well, the president doesn't want this to expand because the U.S. doesn't want to be caught in another Middle East war. It could also be politically fatal for him to make a miscalculation here and draw the U.S. into war when he's already facing so much pushback for his foreign policy decisions linked to what's happening uh, between Israel and Hamas. Does this play a broader, uh, is this a broader challenge for the president as well? As we head towards Election Day, uh, I'm sure there's going to be many complaints from his opponents that he's not, uh, did not move fast enough. Uh, is not uh, acting decisively. Is there worry there may be more pressure on the president here to do even more uh, because of uh, of the, uh, this being the election year? Sure. I mean, look, there are Iran hawks uh, that exist within the Republican Party that say the United States needs to go after uh, Iran and actively target Tehran. You know, understanding full well that that would. Um, you know, it, that would ignite the situation in the Middle East, and the White House has really been trying to push back on that. But politics plays a, a huge role in any, um, you know, military campaign or, or any kind of airstrike uh, that, that's carried out here. Um, and the U.S. And, and the president himself has to walk a very delicate line here. If he acts too aggressively, that could turn off members from within his own party, that could turn off parts of the uh, Democratic electorate base. If he walks too slowly with this, Republicans may call him a weak commander-in-chief, which ultimately could give fuel to someone like Donald Trump uh, to say that Joe Biden is not carrying out uh, his duties um, you know, as, as leader of the United States. So this is a, this is a difficult needle to mm-hmm. thread, uh, and every step is going to have a, a potential consequence here, be it in the Middle East uh, on foreign policy or on domestic policy, um, which is why I think you're seeing this measured approach from the White House to say we don't seek escalated war here, but at the same time, they say that they will stand up for not only their people, but their interests in the region. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Unions and educators across Vancouver are voicing concerns about a teacher shortage and its impact on students. Uh, They've penned an open letter to the Vancouver School Board revealing how dire the situation is becoming. Uh, Between October and December, nearly 1,300 absences were not filled in elementary schools, including nearly 1,000 when resource teachers were pulled from work supporting vulnerable students to cover shifts. 
uh, the letter uh, had mentioned uh, in regards to the impact of Vancouver. The letter was signed by Vancouver Secondary Teachers Association, Vancouver Elementary and Adult Educator Society as well, along with uh, two CUPE locals. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Clint Johnston, President of the BC Teachers Federation. Clint, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Clint, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Well, that's a great opening question. Um, you know, we've been trying to sound the alarm bell about the shortage uh, of teachers for probably a decade or more now. Um, and I think what you're seeing is really the culmination. You know, it's been a growing problem, um, and now it's hit a point where it can't be ignored. It's coming into the metro centers from those remote and rural where it's been a problem for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just are not producing enough teachers, and we're not ensuring that the, the working conditions make for a tenable 30-year career, so we're losing too many of the staff we do have. I was uh, reminded of that as I was dropping my son off at school this morning, and I said, hurry up, you're going to be late. He goes, oh, this class, the, 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 teacher's, and the teacher's always late. I go, why? Because he says they have a tough time filling the spot, so whoever they're bringing in ends up being late, and it's not the teacher's fault. It's just the nature of, of a shortage. And I, and I realized, I said, really? He goes, yeah, it's, it's an issue. And I go, wow, even the kids are noticing it. Um, how do we fix this then in your mind? Is it just a case of more spots? or I mean, I'm, try, I'm trying to understand here, you know, when we talk about shortages, we we always think about doctors and nurses. Um, you know, you would think we would have enough spots in our universities and colleges here. Um, what do we do to fix this? Is it just a case of more more spaces that are needed? Um, no, it's a, it's actually a lot of things that are needed to work in conjunction. More spaces, certainly one of the things. But what we really need, and it's why we're calling for uh, a fully funded workforce strategy, because there are a lot of areas. You know, it is indeed producing enough teachers to fill the gaps and the increases. Um, But it's also, as I said, about how do we keep the teachers that are in the workforce? How do we retain them? How do we make sure they can afford to live in the neighborhoods that they live and work in? That there is housing for them in those neighborhoods um, and that the conditions that they're facing in the classroom don't mean they burn out in five years and uh, leave the workforce for another job. So there are many aspects to it. It's why we think a a proper strategy that's fully funded over several years is the answer. So when you say the the housing part, I understand. When you talk about environment in in our classrooms, what specifically are they dealing with today? Well, I think it's no secret that the, the classrooms that we teach in now are becoming more and more complex. We certainly recognize better as a society that there's different individuals who have different levels of needs in order to be successful. Um, and there is, you know, sometimes there's language in place to support that, but we don't have enough people. So the, the people aren't there even where there is an idea of supporting them. Um, and so we need more people, we need more time to work with those students, and we need more money to ensure that we're producing the teachers we need, and keeping the ones we do have. It's, it's a complex classroom, and one of the most weighing things on any teacher is when they know there's a student there, they know they could help them, but they don't have the time or the resources, and that really affects your mental health in the long term when you see that on an ongoing basis. So we want every student to get what they deserve in the BC public education system. So uh, there are a lot of resource teachers as well that are helping our teacher aides, Uh, teaching assistants, different names for them, but the same sort of work where they're helping out teachers. Um, Is there a shortage of those resource teachers as well? Uh, Well, there's two two kind of things there. Resource teachers would be our members, and that's one of the specialized roles that supports those kids, and we don't have enough of those, and they often get pulled to cover classrooms. But there are also other support personnel, um, often they're QP members, but not always, um, and they're there to support the students absolutely. And yes, there's a shortage of them. There's a shortage of our members. There's even a shortage of, you know, principals, vice principals. It runs through the whole system. Um, so we need more of them. Um, and also, 
you know, we think broadly, like there needs to be a way for those individuals. If they're interested in getting certified, it needs to be pathway for them. That means they can keep working, get certified, and become another person who's at, uh, in the classroom supporting those kids. Is this an ultimate commentary, though, uh, on our funding formula? Because ultimately, schools get funded by the, the amount of students that they have, and there's a formula there, and that could impact education assistance as well, all of those things. I mean, is this ultimately a commentary at its core on our funding formula and the impact it's having on an individual level, not just on students, but on the ability to keep teachers uh, in schools so, so they don't burn out? I mean, is, is this a commentary ultimately on our funding formula? I think it's a commentary absolutely on the formula, but also the funding overall. And that's two kind of different pieces. You know, for us, uh, if you look at the percentage of GDP, if you use that measure that's invested in education, that's dropped dramatically. So overall, there's less money proportionally in education. But even if you look at the, the model, like you said, uh, the districts, not us, the districts regularly report to government that they are they have a shortfall. Uh, often it's around the 350 million range. <coughs> pardon me. That is the difference between the money they receive to support students, particularly those most vulnerable students um, who need that extra support, and what they actually have to spend. So there's a shortfall every year. Not our, not our data. It's uh, reported out by the employer. Um, so it's the model and the overall amount of funding, we would say, yeah. Is this a national issue? I mean, other provinces going through this, or is it a uniquely British Columbia issue? It is absolutely a national and, and even beyond national issue. Um, but certainly as a national issue, there might be some you know, fine differences in exactly where the funding shortfalls are, how it looks. But it's absolutely um, both the funding and the ability to retain and train teachers. Um, we used to get lots of teachers in BC from Ontario and other jurisdictions, and there's just not enough to do that anymore. Um, so it's a national problem for sure. And when you say you could get other teachers, and why they're not, and the, the reason they're not coming here is, is housing and cost as well? Well, there's a, there's a lot of reasons. That can be part of it, but mostly it's that there is a shortage in their own province. So they, they don't have the drive or the impetus to move provinces. There's lots of jobs available to them in their own province. So many of them are staying where they you know, were born or grew up or where they're comfortable living. Um, whereas there used to be enough teachers that some of them thought about coming out here, and there's just not enough now. Hmm. Uh, in regards to fixing this, I mean, how, how confident are you that we can fix this? Because, you know, it takes a while to, 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 to get into this mess. And, and, and housing is a classic example. We've taken literally decades to get into this issue and this problem. And now we're trying to dig it our way out of it. And, and teaching is a different issue, but it's the same issue in the sense that we've taken a long time to get into this mess. Uh, how long do you think we can, mm-hmm. before we fix it in your mind? I mean, what's the time limit here? Do you think it's going to take another decade before we deal with these shortages? I don't think it's going to take a decade, but I think that largely hinges on how decisive uh, the government is in responding to this and how much they're willing to put the investment and the time and the priority on education that it needs. It could be, you know, it's not going to be solved tomorrow. You're absolutely right. We're not going to produce enough teachers by uh, August that we're going to have full, full classrooms. Um, but it can be solved in a few years. It requires a political will, requires some confident action. You know, we've seen uh, this government take concrete action on health care uh, in terms of a strategy and funding that. Um, and we think they can do the same thing. We know it's a priority for the citizens of BC that their children get a, a proper education and get good service, uh, and the kids deserve that. So uh, we think it can be solved in a shorter time frame, not tomorrow, but less than 10 years for sure. Clint, uh, thank you so much for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Thank you very much, Shaz. Appreciate your time, too.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The politics of week that was begins right now. Joining me now is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Hello, Keith. Hey, Chad. Let's focus on uh, the poll earlier this week. British Columbians are set to head uh, back to the polls for another provincial election before the year is out. And a new poll suggests they may be confronted with a restructured political landscape. When they do so, a new poll from Vancouver Race Research co-founded BC's official opposition. Uh, BC United uh, Party is trailing not only the governing NDP, but also the upstart uh, BC Conservative Party. The poll found that 46% of respondents would back the governing NDP if an election were held today, followed by 25% for the BC Conservatives, 17% for BC United, and 11% for the BC Greens. Uh, I guess the first question to ask, uh, Keith, uh, can the BC United now in third place turn it around? Well, I think the challenge for them, the most realistic challenge, can they turn it around to retain official opposition status? It would be a pretty heroic comeback if they can go from 15 points in public opinion to actually being in a spot to form government, which requires you know, probably at least 42% of the, of the popular vote. Uh, interesting, that research poll also found that the universe, and these are the maximum number of people who are at least willing to consider voting for a party, for BC United was just 33% which is actually less than the popular vote the party received under the VC Liberal banner in 2020. The universe for uh, the potential universe for the VC Conservatives is 42% and for the NDP uh, more than 50%. So right now in the number of people who are w- at least considering or willing to consider voting for a party, the Conservatives have a significant lead over BC United. Now, BC United launched uh, an ad campaign this week. We'll see if that has any impact. I'm still not sure how extensive it's going to be. But that's a pretty deep hole they found themselves in. And they have not been able to dig themselves out of it for several months now. This is not a rogue poll. This is basically a, like, similar polls that have been going back for two months, if not three months. People can say, well, it's just a poll, which is true. It's just a snapshot in time. Things can change between now and October when the election is scheduled for. Mm-hmm. But, uh, no, the challenge is for BC United, not necessarily to form government, that's to remain intact as an official opposition instead of being replaced by the BC Conservatives. How much of this, though, is just people confused over BC Conservatives and federal Conservatives, two different parties, and that perhaps the electorate, electorate will get a little uh, more focus as we get closer to Election Day in October? Oh, I think people will get more focused. They always do. As, as voting day draws near, you start paying more attention. There is genuine confusion over the BC United name. I think there's an obvious spillover effect from the Poliev, Pierre Poliev numbers federally, uh, sort of spilling over to boost the BC Conservative fortunes. 
Um, so and again, that may change over time. We don't know where Polyev is headed. Right now he's flying high in the polls. That could change. And if suddenly, were, if he were to take a tumble, that might have, a, again, a negative effect on the B.C. Conservative Party. But right now, it's a brand that's running pretty high. And uh, certainly the BC United brand has yet to distinguish itself or even define itself. And I'm not sure these radio ads are going to really make a lot of progress along that, uh, reaching that goal. Let's, uh, before we get to the ads themselves, let's just talk a little bit about the potential. Let's just say the vote remains split. We're talking about NDP supermajority territory. What kind of the seat count are we talking about here potentially? Well, if it, if it remains this type of split, where you know the United is only 15 points, Conservatives at 25, and the NDP at, at close to 50, we're talking you know more than 80 seats out of a 93 seat House. We're adding six seats because of redistribution. Now, again, the election is still a number of months away. Uh, things can change, but if that voting pattern were to hold, you see the NDP picking up places, picking up seats in places they usually don't, such as the Okanagan, the North. Um, even the East Kootenays uh, and parts of the Fraser Valley. So uh, they made some inroads in some seats they generally don't win in Chilliwack and Langley and Abbotsford in uh, 2020. Right now they would hold those seats and potentially even add more in those areas. Um, also one in Vernon for the first time in a long time. And this, again, bolsters the NDP chances to not only hold on to the seats that one picked up from the United, or from the VC Liberals in 2020, but also add to it in terms of seats in areas traditionally off-limits to it. Mm-hmm. Now, you, uh, there were some YouTube videos, and I think some of them are going to be running on television, I assume. I haven't seen any television ads yet. I certainly heard uh, Kevin Falcon's ad on this program yesterday, and I think it's run on a few other uh, of our radio shows here, and I don't know... When TV will be rolled out, if it is, and and uh, and digital as well. What are your thoughts on just the videos that you've seen so far? Well, again, they've got a big selling job to do, and I'm not sure this is going to get it done. Um, and again, it, it depends where they're putting these ads and who, how many eyeballs are seeing them. So if you're not advertising on on platforms that are seen by a lot of people just regularly then you're not going to get through to a large chunk of the voting public. If you restrict yourself to social media, that tends to be an echo chamber of people who already support you. They need to get people beyond the 15% who are showing up in the poll. They need to get people, according to research call, 41% of the people who voted for B.C. Liberals in 2020 have no intention for voting for B.C. United this time. Those are the people they got to get back. And I'm not sure they're going to get them through YouTube videos or social media campaigns. You need traditional legacy media, even though there's more and more cord cutters, there's still hundreds of thousands of people on voters who watch television, for example. Uh, you need to do more than advertise on radio. You've got to, I mean, it would be a pretty good sign for them if they were to be able to secure an ad during a Vancouver Canucks game, for example, mm-hmm. or in the spring hockey playoffs or on Global News Hour. These are the shows that have all the eyeballs. If they can get an ad in those places, they'll be doing well. If they're stuck doing ads on social media or smaller stations or regional news outlets, then that's really not going to be a successful rebranding campaign. I've always found through my experience with the LNG industry and, and, you know, was handling campaigns for them, and these are seven-figure campaigns, you need two fundamental issues beyond just research and saying, where are the voters that aren't 
looking at us at this point. How do we reach them? What is the message that's going to reach them, number one? You need research. But you also need, one, time. And to start now in 2024, months before an election, uh, you don't have that time. They should have done this the day they announced a name change, and they haven't done that, number one. They've been talking about a rebrand campaign since the day they changed the name. It was going to come any day now. Well, we're finally seeing it. We still don't know what it's going to look like. And the clock is ticking you know, there's six months to the election. Um, that's not a lot of time to rebrand. <laughs> and then on top of that, my second point is you need money. And uh, I think this campaign is runs into March, but $1.3 I would argue you need between 4 and $5 million to actually do the job. And that will sustain you well into late August, uh, early September for the Rick Drops. And they don't have those kind of dollars. So, you know, a six, seven-week campaign, I'm not sure how you sustain that and thinks anything has changed. Not to mention, you know, you take uh, messaging and messaging. Metro Vancouver, it's going to be different than what people want in, in the interior. You've got large exactly. uh, ethnic communities that sometimes it's better to speak to them in Cantonese or Mandarin or Punjabi or Philippine language of Telugu. all of that. I mean, it, this is a, it's a lot for them to do in just six weeks. There's that's huge, sure. huge ethnic communities that aren't going to uh, consume media all the same way and all in the same language. So you're right. This has to be – the media landscape is so, so – partly fractured and partly multidimensional. You just can't pick one aspect, one platform and think you're going to get it done there. It's got to be social media, but it's got to be legacy media, and it's got to be ethnic media. Yeah, there's no... And I haven't seen any evidence that that's going to be done. Speaking to Keith Bald, Regal BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, we're talking about the week that was in BC politics. We've got a jam-packed switchboard. Let's go to George in Nanaimo. Hi, George. Hi, guys. Um, I think what you seem to be missing or you don't really seem to get is that uh, there are an awful lot of people that are vehemently opposed to the policies of this government, and they are not the kind of people that are going to respond to the polls. They don't trust the polls. They don't trust the mainstream media. And there's a lot of them out there. We're basically into two camps. One are the folks that are supportive of the government and the policies, and the others are vehemently opposed. And the problem with United is they're somewhere in between, and there's no space in between. Well, I don't know what to make of that. United is not in favor of the government. They want to replace the government. I think George is talking about the fact there's a lot of folks that, uh, uh, I guess, aren't speaking to the pollsters. And, and, and look, what's happening today could change in two weeks yeah. or in two months. And that's that's the part of gauging public mood. And it can be one story. And as I've told many people here behind the scenes, one uh, everyday person walking down the street gets attacked by somebody, let's say, is dealing with drug issues. That can change an issue. Uh, it can be somebody stuck in an emergency room uh, at a hospital that catches the attention of the public or somebody going across. The border. You don't know well, what issues. Well, the problem with that is is that the gap between the government and the two opposition parties is so vast yes. that that it would take an earthquake to close that gap unless they got unless they combine forces. But again, John Rustad and Kevin Falcon show no signs whatsoever of merging. And I think you got a question of egos and pride involved here. And neither wants to give an inch. And Rustad's got the momentum now, so he's not going to budge. And Falcon's gone all in on this name change, and he's not going to budge. And that leaves a Pretty clear highway for the NDP. Let's go to Karen and Surrey. Hi, Karen. Hi. First of all, we have a long-term memory about uh, the former Liberals and what they did. I've never voted NDP in my life. Last election I did, I will vote again. Mm-hmm. I live in Surrey, and I'm very happy with what's happening in, in the NDP government. Although the health care system, I look at the federal government for that debacle. I don't, I don't blame the provinces. Every province is in the same boat, and we have to look at the federal level for that. 
so I think that, you know what, uh, long-term memories and the split, the conservatives and the uh, United are going to split the vote, and the NDP will have a majority again. Karen, thanks for your call. She raises a very good point, Keith, in that, and I've said this is the core issue with the BC Liberals, BC United. Even when they have a good idea, when the public look to them for an alternative, there is something there that says, we don't trust you yet. The other guys are kind of messing up, but they're trying. And I'd rather vote for them. In this case, this uh, caller, Karen, says she's going to vote NDP, has voted BC Liberal before. But when you look at them at BC United saying, I still don't trust you. And it tells me that, that, A, they just haven't renewed yet. You need new faces, new people, new ideas, and they're still not there. Well, you know, the Free Enterprise Coalition has fallen apart. It fell apart in 1991. It took two elections to rebuild. It's falling apart now. It may take two elections to rebuild. I mean, elections go through cycles. And again, the Socrates fell apart in 91, um, replaced by the B.C. Liberals and the B.C. Reform Party, though two parties. It took 10 years for them to combine forces. And you're seeing now the old B.C. Liberals fall apart and leaving two parties, B.C. United and B.C. Conservatives. And it may take them 10 years to get their act together. All right, let's go to Stephen in Burnaby. Hi, Stephen. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Unfortunately, I think Kevin Falcon's going to get his butt handed to him because the conservative brand is just too strong. He's got the Polyev wave, and if they don't do an amalgamation, he's going to wake up crying on election night when he finds the conservatives have done far, far, far better. Uh, Keith, uh, one of the things I keep going back to, let's just say John Rustad would come back to the party. He's not bringing all those voters that are supporting him back. A lot of the folks are just never going to vote BC. Well, yeah, they're not there because of, they're not necessarily there because of John Rustad. No, the, the BC. The, the, Color's right. The BC Conservative brand has become more powerful in recent months than it ever has been. In, in you know, BC Conservatives have not been a factor at the provincial level since World War II. Uh, but now, potentially, they are, if they can hold on to those numbers. But as I say, still you know, a number of months before the vote. That's true. All right, let's uh, go to uh, Adam, Adam and Langley. Hi, Adam. Hey, thanks for the, taking the call. I think that BC United is in a lot of trouble. I don't understand BC voters, period, going NDP. We need someone like we have, like to have in Alberta who cares about the working class and stands up for their best interests instead of left-leaning global ideas what do you like what do you like about danielle smith specifically uh i'm a big fan of her alberta first she doesn't bow down to especially to trudeau with the the oil and gas industry all that kind of stuff she cares she understands her job is to the people of her province first but Um, but we're 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 different that wins we do have a oil and gas industry, more a gas industry but metro vancouver is is its own political animal is it not adam even your community in langley you look at the numbers boy it's changing fast a hundred percent it's changing fast but i think we need to this province is so out of touch with working class people it's focused on uh issues that go far past our residencies that i primarily things of of environmental issues and stuff and the left has been hijacked by nutcases <laughs> all right adam thank you very much for the well, reminder. you know um british club the key to holding political power in bc is uh, hold the middle hold the center and shade yourself a little to the right or a little to the left and don't go too far in one direction bc is not an overly conservative province nor is it an overly liberal one but it is certainly not a far right or far left one and the part, party that understands that the best is going to hold power in victoria exactly keith have yourself a wonderful right, weekend you take care
Let's talk about that bad blood. TikTok says it has removed all music by artists licensed to Universal Music Group, including Taylor Swift, who you just heard, BTS, Drake, and Olivia Rodrigo. Uh, they, uh, t- uh, TikTok says that it started removing the music uh, on January 31st uh, at midnight Pacific time. Uh, in an open letter, a United Music Group argued that, among other things, that TikTok wasn't compensating its artists fairly and allowing the platform to be flooded with AI-generated recordings as well as developing tools to enable, promote, encourage AI music creation on the platform uh, itself. Here's Global News' Mike Gourlay reporting on the story. Universal posted an open letter on why we must call timeout on TikTok explaining they have three issues, compensation, the harmful effects of AI, and online safety for TikTok's users. Money is, of course, an issue. Snoop Dogg reported he made $45,000 from over a billion streams on Spotify, and TikTok pays even less, roughly $20 to $40 for a million views. The real concern is AI, which the music industry fears will replace human artists eventually so the two sides could reconcile if you want to reach the gen z you have to be on tiktok because like it or not that's where all the cool kids are mike drillet global news toronto i'm not one of those cool kids i got <laughs> that much right now. Joining us now is show contributor Jerry Mayer Judson. What do you make of all this, Jerry? Um, I think on the one hand, I think obviously artists need to be compensated for, you know, platforms that are capitalizing off of their tunes because it gives the artists a lot of, you know, ex- I just I just think it's a good idea to give to have a fair contract with the recording artists for sure, especially when status quo, you heard that stat about Snoop Dogg, when status quo, he's not really making a whole heck of a lot of money when his music is being used. And if that's your form of income, then sure. Sometimes I'm like, wham, wham, billionaires. But yeah. Um, but then I also think I'm like, I'm someone who uses TikTok. I am one of I don't I wouldn't call myself a cool kid, but I'm on TikTok and yeah. I I think that's kind of a bummer. I've seen some audio from some of the TikToks that I've made has been stripped for copyright claims because Universal is pulling these pulling these tunes. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I got I got a number one. I got a problem with TikTok because the minute you put TikTok on your phone, you're basically saying uh, welcome to the Chinese Communist government, and they'll have full access to your phone. So mm-hmm. I think TikTok should be banned. I think India's banned it. Uh, the U.S. of course, uh, government employees cannot use government phones, and even here in British Columbia, you're forbidden to use TikTok. But I think we need to go for I would just ban TikTok in in, in Western society because literally uh, they have access to all your apps. So that, number one, that's a huge problem for us in the West. We shouldn't be doing that. But the core issue of compensation, you're right. I mean, Snoop Dogg, you know, whether you like whether you like commercial music or not, or you felt feel that Taylor Swift or Snoop Dogg make enough money, it's still their their talent. And the think that the millions of streams that Snoop Dogg probably has every year and make measly forty five thousand uh, dollars, I think is ridiculous. I think one of the reasons I think Spotify has been raising or increasing rates, uh, monthly rates, is because I think that because of that the complaint from from artists. But it's still ridiculous. I mean, how much money would he make if he had sold, you know, half of them as CDs, significantly more, like a dollar or two probably a CD? To think all those streams and you get a measly forty five thousand. That's pretty rough. And I guess, I don't know, you save on self-promotion or whatever because algorithmically your stuff is shown to people. But then also in terms of going back to TikTok and artists, there's a situation in particular with this artist Tate McRae. Mm -hmm. She is uh, sort of, I guess, like a pop 
artist. Um, she's actually from Calgary and she came up because of TikTok. She would put her songs on TikTok. There would mm-hmm. be dances. And then, and then she achieved stardom that way because, and I think that that's interesting because I just, if you're in Calgary, that's not necessarily anymore these days, a hotbed of getting famous the traditional way. Mm-hmm. So she did that. And then signing on to a record label owned by the universal music group, then her music can no longer be on TikTok. Like, I think that's crazy. I do, but you know what? They get the muscle of a real music uh, corporation that promotes artists. And there's other ways to do that. Number one, uh, you know, one of the problems I have with Spotify or even TikTok is, okay, they don't pay the artists very well. So when they do come and perform to in Vancouver or Calgary, that's why those ticket prices are so expensive. These artists, uh, if they're making more the yeah. traditional way, I don't think, uh, you know, tickets would be so much when they come because that's going to be their main bre- bread and butter. That now. totally is. And it always has been. It's always been tour sales. That is in ticket sales and merch sales. That's been what had, makes a musician their money. It, even when it was from CDs, it wasn't so much the music sales. The music sales were just a way to sort of promote the tours and the merchandise because that is where the biggest chunk of money goes from directly to the artist. Mm-hmm. So it's really they're making money from touring and then whatever these streaming dollars. I mean, it's nice and obviously it's important, but I suppose it's not gravy because they need it. But yeah, I think it's it's sort of like that. And actually, I can't pull up the statistics right now if like off of the dome. However, I know that Spotify was not actually a very profitable company until very recently. Yeah, that's why they're raising prices. Exactly. Right? So, so, so that, you know, someone a, can pay the staff at their mansion or something well, like that. I mean, I, I think it should be fair compensation. But, yeah. you know, when, when Snoop Dogg's only making 45, like I said, he's going to do fine because he's got 19 other ways to make money. Uh, but I think artists should be compensated. And so I just don't, I just have a healthy distrust of big tech. Fair. Uh, uh, and as you know on this show, uh, based on things we do on the impact it's had on children and social media, but TikTok is that, and TikTok is more than that when you sign up for it. You just have to, like, people should read the fine print on TikTok. You're basically giving them full access uh, to your phone, including other apps that you already have that they can check up on, spy on. And if the Chinese government ever wanted to, they could spy on everything you do on your phone. There's something fundamentally, fundamentally wrong with that. They're going to see all the cool recipes that I have saved on TikTok. (laughs) They're going to see all of the dances that I'm going to try to learn and then never do. And I'm (laughs) like praying and hoping, praying that I'm a very uninteresting person. But yeah, no, I totally, I totally get that. There's terms and conditions. I don't think that... I don't know. You if should I just, if you have time, just just read, read the terms and conditions. Just, just t- yeah, type it, and you'd be just shocked at what I think, access we give. To I think TikTok. what would happen to me is it would be the same thing as seeing an eldritch horror. Like I wouldn't be able to physically or mentally comprehend it. I would break. I would have to go on leave. Yeah. I showed what to. Who. But at least you know. At least you're aware. Xi Jinping wants your recipes. He has yes, full access to them. He so totally that's, can. That's he's going to find that pasta Eleanor China, and he's going to make it. And he's going to love go. it. There you go. <laughs> Well, 2023 was a record-breaking year for passenger volume at the Abbotsford International Airport. Airport officials uh, tell us that in 2023, 1,275,484 uh, people uh, traveled through the airport. That's an increase of, get this, 26.5% over the previous record of 1 million set in 2019. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the Abbotsford Airport and its tremendous growth is Parm Sidhu. He's General Manager of the Abbotsford International Airport. Parm, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jazz. It's been a while, but I hope all is good with you. It is all very good, and it's also very good for uh, the Abbotsford International Airport. Uh, YXX uh, has uh, seen record numbers, one point. 
2 million passengers for 2023. What's driving this increase? Well, Jazz, you know, is a, as an, as a key economic enabler for the one of the fastest growing regions in North America and one of the most livable areas in the world, in my opinion. Uh, our airline partners in Flair and WestJet really showcased how to make travel more affordable and accessible for everyday Canadians. So walk me through here. Uh, the two airlines that, that operate out of YXX, the two main ones, are WestJet and Flair Airlines? That's correct. So, uh, and, and in your mind, where do you think you can go in this case? I know the, the, you have direct routes to Edmonton and Calgary, Winnipeg, Toronto, Hamilton, Kitchener, London, and you also go to do, uh, Puerto Vallarta and Los Cabos. Where do you see the next uh, increase coming from? In, you've hit 1.2 million passengers. Uh, where do you see the next bit of growth coming from? Yeah, that's great. Like I said, this is a vibrant region and a vibrant economy, and uh, our region loves to fly to various parts of Canada and fun destinations in parts of the U.S. So, you know, our airline partners are making travel accessible and affordable for all Canadians to, you know, where Canadians want to go. You know, eventually we want to have flights into the U.S. and do like Phoenix, L.A., and Cabo and Mazatlan and uh, uh, Cancun. Uh, everywhere Canadians either have uh, assets in real estate, homes, or timeshares, is that's where we want to give people options. Uh, in regards to uh, international, uh, is there any desire to do you know bigger, uh, have more bigger pl- bigger planes flying to Europe or Asia potentially? Yeah, at this point, if you looked at, you know, we had 490,000 passengers in 2015, 530 in 2016, 677 in 2017, 842 in 2018, broke the million mark in 19, then fast track to 2023, record year, daily, weekly, monthly. You know, we're just focused on taking Canadians uh, where they want to go, primarily domestically, and then it'll be into the U.S. and then to, obviously, sun destinations. We already have a good footprint into Cabo, uh, Puerto Vallarta, and Mazatlan, uh, those other destinations will come in time, but we're really just focused on, you know, the ultra-low-cost carriers and flair and what they're doing in the marketplace, stimulating travelers. Otherwise, that would probably stay on the couch mm-hmm. and motivating you to take multiple trips uh, a year and go see our wonderful, beautiful country. We were kind of turning into a domestic uh, Vegas in many ways, you know, Edmonton, uh, or we are, Edmonton, Calgary, and the short haul flights uh, are just significant. How many people are flying back and forth on a Thursday and coming back Monday morning? Hmm. Uh, in regards to getting uh, to the airport, right now you drive. Um, there's going to be obviously some transit. Uh, if people from Vancouver wanted to, to to use Abbotsford Airport for perhaps saving costs, do you have any bus service? I'm, I'm just curious, or any shuttle service that that they could rely on at this point? Yeah, these low cost carriers stimulate travelers. Uh, Jazz, and, you know, our fare has hovered between $49 and $79 in 2023 in the summer. You know, people are flying to Edmonton for the day or going to a rock concert or a sport venue, sporting venue in another province because air travel was affordable and accessible. And But it needs a matching ecosystem, right? Uh, you know, we are a large city and that happens to have an airport, a uh, university, and, you know, we do have busing service and shuttle service uh, within the region. We had shuttle service to Surrey SkyTrain. Uh, we have a door-to-door shuttle in the Valley Airporter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also have Uber and taxis and car rentals. So consumers deserve options, just like airlift. You've got to have a ground network, and we're continuously improving on that. And uh, we look for more things to come in the coming years on multimodal, more digitization, 
of throughput and multimodal platforms. Uh, in regards to parking, give me a sense of your parking situation now. If I was were to go to, uh, let's say, to Mexico uh, for a week, uh, what kind of what am I expecting to pay if I want to leave my vehicle there? Yeah, all uh, nine dollars a day or fifty four dollars a week. Uh, you know, our airport and our airline partners. Uh, you know, we got to provide value, and uh, you know, consumers deserve options. And you know, you stimulate travelers, and we can showcase that from. The numbers we've seen from 2015 to 2023, we have been one of the fastest growing airports in Canada measured by percentage points. And that's because the consumers saw value and opportunities to literally see people. We had first-time flyers. It's amazing to see the people walking through the terminal. I haven't gone here in a long time or I've never flown. And how low-cost carriers stimulate the bigger opportunity. Um, I, I'm curious, how much more growth can you handle before you would have to consider expansion just for your terminal? Yeah, we've been continuously expanding. Uh, we've reinvested uh, close to $100 million since 1997, since the city of Abbotsford has been operating and owning an airport. Uh, you know, we're continuously uh, expanding. Uh, we, you know, we, we were doing 7,400 passengers a day peak summer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were the well, ninth busiest airport for, you know, 25% of summer, uh, measured by pasture volumes. and this That's in Canada? Summer, so, you that know, was in Canada? Yeah. Okay. 7,400 passengers a day we were doing uh, this past summer. It was busy. And those passengers come from anywhere from a 30-minute you know, to a three-hour radius. If not, so in some cases, people from the U.S. were coming up. We're seeing people parking this way, cross-border leakage coming this way. So, you know, we're continuously investing uh, in infrastructure. Like I said, the the facility was handling 7,400 passengers a day annualized. That puts you just shy of 2.8. So we want to keep our infrastructure ahead, but we don't want to overbuild. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, our, the airfield is a very busy place. We are in the top 10 busiest airports in Canada measured by aircraft movements, right? Some of the aerospace companies that call Abbotsford home that are doing work not just locally, but globally, mm-hmm. uh, Cascade Aerospace, Con Air Aviation, the largest aerial force fighting company, uh, in the world, it calls Abbotsford home, doing work right around the globe. Chinook Helicopters, the premier helicopter and fixed-wing training school, uh, and the University of the Fraser Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, many companies call Abbotsford home, but these employees live all throughout the region so, and the supply chain as well. So right now, though, when you mention Flair and even WestJet to a certain degree, your focus is still going to be on the low-cost carrier before more traditional carriers like Air Canada or others one day may fly out of there, but but the the focus for you uh, right now in the medium term and short term is still focusing on the low cost carriers because that's where the growth is in your mind. Yeah, we're we're open for business, Jazz, and we're a platform for business, and we'll let the business go where they think is they can hit the market the fastest and be viable and grow. We're a platform for business, and you know we've showcased how an open for business platform uh, can grow pasture volumes and deliver what the passenger wants. I'm curious, because uh, I know nothing about this. Are landing fees different compared to Abbotsford, to, let's say traditionally YVR or Pearson Airport? Yeah, we're, 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 we're different in most other airports in Canada. We don't have an airport improvement fee. So, you know, we only charge a landing and terminal fee, which well, is probably almost 
would that be the same as Air Canada? Like the airlines have to pay something in regards to a landing fee. Do you would you charge something similar to to, to YVR, or would yours be a different structure because it's just it's it's a, it's a secondary airport? No, so we we have a landing fee and a terminal fee, just like most other airports in Canada should have. What we don't have is the airport improvement fee that most airports charge in Canada, and that fee can range from lowest 20 to 30 to $35 per ticket. Okay, okay. Well, congratulations to you. Uh, 1.2 a 26% increase over the previous record of just over a million in 2019 pre-COVID. Uh, looks like uh, lots of growth ahead for you as well. Thanks so much for your time today, Parm. Yeah, take care, Jasmine. Have a grand weekend. Goodbye now is over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's Friday. This week, we go back to the future as HMV returns to Canada to sell CDs, DVDs, and vinyl. What year is it? And Universal Music drops TikTok. Is this a major blow for social media? Joining us today is our regular rap panel. Leah Halai is a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey, an author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. Bonjourno. Well, a blast from the past is coming to Toys R Us here in Canada. HMV, the entertainment brand that departed the country seven years ago, said this week that it has begun selling merchandise in five of the toy retailers' Ontario locations. The rollout will continue across other Toys R Us Canada locations this spring. Products for sale in the HMV branded sections include CDs, DVDs, vinyl, record players, and other collector items like T-shirts and books. The move, which makes Mark's HMV's return to the Canadian market is being positioned by Toys R Us as a way to appease consumer demand for pop culture, collector, and nostalgic merchandise. Now, if you don't know uh, what HMV is, here's a vintage HMV commercial for the 1990s featuring Ed the Sock. Oh, hi, Ed the Sock here at HMV, where they tell me they got friendly and knowledgeable staff. So let's put them through their paces. What jazz great's middle name is Sphere? That would be the late great Thelonious Monk. Who does Cheryl Crow sing backup for? Um, that would be Michael Jackson. What do Dolly Parton and Whitney Houston have in common? They both sang I Will Always Love You. So come on into HMV, where staff members like Jennifer and Nathan will show you customer service that'll knock your socks off. All right, I'm done. When do I get paid? <laughs> Doesn't that sound quay? Talk about a different era, a different time. Uh, Leah, let me go to you first and foremost. What do you think about this, uh, I guess, uh, you know, back to the future, nostalgia? What do you call it? I mean, that that commercial sounded very dated, I gotta say. It sounded like it's from the 70s, maybe. But I think, you know, HMV, they're selling CDs and DVDs, but like, who has CDs and DVD players anymore? I know nostalgia sells. We do know that. We've seen that. But I kind of thought it was interesting. Why Toys R Us, right? That's kind of an, an interesting partnership. I wouldn't think to go there for that. But then I got to thinking. I thought, well, can we have Blockbuster back then? Because that I'm all for. <laughs> <laughs> Blockbuster. Remember the, re- the rewind fee? Oh, my God. Oh, and you get charged, yeah. And then you'd sit outside you know, for the time that people had to bring it back, just hoping, right? Someone brought your movie back. You wanted to get there early (laughs) on a Friday just so you get one of the prize new releases. That's right. Sarah, what do you think about this uh, HMV uh, opening up in some of the Toys R Us because of pop culture and a little nostalgia? What what do I think about it? I actually actually don't. I never think about it. Um, It's You know what? But I 
just as we were talking, I thought, okay, Leah brought up why with Toys R Us, but I'm thinking mm-hmm. this is where the parents go while the kids are in the toy end so they can like live vicariously through their own childhoods and revisit the whole HMV thing, which I personally don't re- really remember that kind of thing all that much. Wasn't really part of my life. I remember like A and B sound. Anybody yes. in the Lower Mainland remembers A and B sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Going down to A and B sound on Seymour, you know, get, waiting for it's new releases. Store, yeah. They had the best prices. They beat everybody like by far as far as prices were concerned. So that's what I remember nostalgia wise. But hanging out at HMV. Not so much. Uh, for our listeners out there of a certain vintage uh, that don't know what A and B sound sounds like, because <laughs> Sarah brought it up, let us tell people down. don't know. Uh, they, I'm sad to say. I'm sad it's, to say. Stalia, can you play a, 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 an A and B sound commercial for us? It's the Super Sale at A and B Sound. VTAC Extended Range 900 Megahertz Cordless Phones, only sixty-six dollars. With Pioneer 400-watt home theater receivers, just $199. (laughs) RCA camcorders below original dealer cost, $347. You mean they didn't have cameras on phones? It's the super sale. And and I think that's that's Terry Reid doing the voice work. Yeah, I know Terry Reid. We're with Terry. We all know Terry. It's either Terry... For a second there, I thought it was Kono. I thought it was Jim Conrad, but I'm pretty sure that's Terry Reid. Oh, my yeah. God. Oh that's my God. how old I am. But, do you, you know, I mean, I get the idea of not wanting to pay for individual CDs sometimes, but even streaming now, it's getting more and more expensive. And, and, we, and we're going to talk about this a little later with Universal Group taking, uh, pulling out yeah. of uh, uh, TikTok there, not wanting to do any business with them. Uh, do, you guys, but, do you guys use streaming services? Because I don't even use a streaming service. I do. Where do you get your music from I have every from, single then? one. I, I have, like... <laughs> Because I'm old, I have serious uh, satellite radio in the car. Yeah. So I, I can, like, I'll tw- go through that stuff and obviously listen to local radio as well. But, you know, I... And but you I, can't and pick I, and I thought, choose your music, though, can you? No. Like but I, but you I've also make your got, own like, a ton playlist. of music from back when people actually had iPods that yeah. I have, like, has followed my, you know, uh, iPhone updates. So I've probably got, like, 2,500 songs so You on still my use phone. iTunes, then? I actually <laughs> use iTunes. Don't. Don't make fun oh of me. I will, God. I will hunt you down and shoot I you. I thought they shut that oh. down. No, no, no. no. It's still there. It's you still see, we there. still get Apple Music. You can okay, I got that. But yeah. iTunes, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. That is just that is nostalgic. If it's not broke, don't fix it. So, was, uh, uh, Leah, was, you said you have yeah. all the streaming services. Like, do you pay or do you just take the free stuff? No, I do the paying. So, I have I, and I have every imaginable streamer on TV a lot. Like well, I'm just curious, what are you paying like forty bucks a month for just streaming yeah. music? Oh yeah, yeah. It's really? Why do you need? Is, why do you need more than one? Things about streaming now, right? Is that everybody's got all these subscriptions, and all yeah. these people are like, "I'm far too cool to have cable." Yet you're spending three hundred dollars a month on all these streaming. Well, that's why. Yeah. Guess exactly. what? They I'm have screwed us over. They have screwed <laughs> us over. Oh my god! Yeah, why do you have more than one cool. music state music uh, streaming? Uh, because service? like they're different. Like so, like I have my Apple, right? Because that, I have an iPhone, and then Spotify is cool because it selects the music for you, right? So I have three of them. So I don't have them all, but I have three of them. But not, they it's saw you coming. Isn't that like they fifty bucks a coming. month or something? Is that fifty bucks a month or something? It's close to that. I think it's like maybe forty something. <laughs> Yeah, so oh my close, close to that. Oh my and then that's I have that's five the, CDs probably you could buy a month. The, yeah, I have all the streamers too for TV as well. So I have them all. Oh, all of them. I have Netflix. <laughs> and, cable. And, I, and I do have, 
I guess I've got whatever Amazon is because I have Amazon Prime, Prime. so yeah. I get yeah. Amazon for free. <laughs> the only other subscription I can think of that I have is is Apple News because it gets you all the magazines and stuff like uh, that. Yeah. Well, the music of Taylor Swift, Drake, Olivia Rodrigo, among many others, uh, disappeared from TikTok on Wednesday uh, because of a well kerfuffle between the Universal Music Group and the social media giant TikTok. Uh, TikTok estimates 1.5 billion monthly users can enhance their videos with music from across the um, main record label's uh, catalog. But um, the Universal Music Group says, hey, we're not getting compensated enough or the artists and songwriters aren't. They also were concerned over artificial intelligence and ripping off uh, some of this music as well. So they've pulled the music uh, from TikTok. So I'm going to go to Leah first. Leah, your thoughts on this? Do you think this is a good thing? Yeah. Okay. So I'm probably the, you probably don't use TikTok and I know Sarah does not use TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. So uh, I use it and I like TikTok. I know the Chinese government is now knowing what I'm doing, but I think like with the music, it actually makes the TikToks. Like I post a lot of funny videos, but a lot of them are my cats. So now my cat's videos are not going to have cool music. It's just going to be, you know, the generic stuff, which is just it's like the devastating. Posts. Yeah. So I am very sad, Sarah, about this. I think it makes the TikToks. And I hope they change that. I would say the alert the media, right. but we're on media. You're so on I, media. We are. <laughs> so I, I understand Leah's pain. I, uh, I am uh, like a lot of people. I do not put TikTok on my phone because I don't want yeah. Xi Jinping knowing what I'm doing. Period. And the minute, the minute you do download TikTok, they have yeah. full access to all your apps, quite frankly. Yes, but guess what? You're a contact on my phone, so now they know both of you. But they, but I, the app is not there. The app is Zoom not there. Yeah, exactly. Sarah, your thoughts on this? I mean, do you think, I mean, you got social media being sued by school districts in the U.S. Here, of course, in the province, yep. they said, we're going after some of these social media outlets. And now some of the uh, Universal Music, music Group is pulling um, their music. Uh, what do you think this is all about in your mind? Well, I mean, end of day, I mean, let's look at all the social media companies or not forget like Meta, but the individual. So we had, we started with MySpace and that died and there's still Facebook, but really it's for old people. And then Instagram (laughs) came along and Instagram like had its moment in the sun, but now it's not as much. And then there was Snapchat and now there's TikTok. So TikTok is starting to smell like the salmon that's being left on the counter all day. It's coming to the end of its shelf life. Like it became a thing during the pandemic, right? Like it was like yeah. 2020. So I give it to the middle of next year and then there'll be another app that comes along that I won't join because, you know, <laughs> by the time I got to Instagram, I'm like, really? And I actually, for a very brief moment, had a MySpace page. Did you I really? Very, for a very brief moment because it was like, oh, I wonder what this is. And I remember like signing up and going like, wow, this is really stupid. Okay, never mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Do you think we're at that point where it's like, not that social media is ever going to go away, but it, it's going to wane where we go, you know what? We've given up too much of our time and our life uh, and our privacy away to these companies. And, you know, we, we're the product at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, because I'm we're going to have tips in our brains and that's how I'm we're going to communicate for, and that's it. I'm <laughs> waiting for kids to, because kids are always like the first ones to like sort of, make things uncool right and so like they look at us and kind of put the big l on their foreheads and stuff i'm waiting for them to go this stuff is manipulative and it's not i don't like it because it's it's causing me grief because kids are much more in touch with that kind of stuff now yeah and that they actually say you know what this stuff really makes me feel terrible a lot of the time and it sucks and it's full of all sorts of bad information maybe i don't care anymore yeah that will be the turning point because it's the rest of us, like, you know, and the, like, certainly, like, people that are trying to be influencers and all that kind of stuff and the manipulation, that's where it attracts. 
if mm-hmm. kids, if the younger generations, like if the kids that are under 20 right now say, you know what, I don't so much care, that'll be the end of it. There you go. Leah, Sarah, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Have a great weekend, guys. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.